Welcome to Commitment Day. Over the last four weeks, last three weeks, we have been talking about celebrating Jesus. We look back at the history of Livingstone Church, and what do we see? God's story. We see how God has used the people in this place for his glory and for his work. We see how people's hearts of lives have been changed and challenged by the work of God. We look to the future and we see what God is going to do. And we live in light of those amazing promises of what God is going to do in our hearts and lives. We live that changes us today. And we look last week at his present story. And I, I have watched Kathy Jones' story probably three or four times this week. It's been amazing to hear her story and just be reminded of what God is presently doing in our church family, getting hold of her life and growing her faith. And Darren Fricky and where God has brought him out of in an incredible journey of faith that he is on. And there are more stories and more stories. We plan on sharing those stories with you. After hearing all these stories of celebration, as we think about what God is doing and how he's changing hearts and lives he has in the past, he will in the future, and he is right now, what are we to do? What are we to respond? How do we act in regards to this celebration? Great question. I'm so glad you guys have been thinking about that question because we're going to answer that this morning. We are going to come from three different texts of Scripture this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to be in John chapter 4. And then we're going to go forward, excuse me, go backwards in your Bible a little bit to Luke chapter 19. There are three stories I would like to share with you this morning in order that we might see a theme that is developing in these scripture passages that answers that question, what is it to look like? What are we supposed to do in regards to this celebration of the story of God being unfurled, unfolded in our midst? The first passage we're looking at is about a couple brothers. Now, if we were to look at these brothers in light of today, we would see a couple blue-collar worker types, okay? These, this is story is primarily about Andrew and Simon. Most of you know Simon as Peter, okay? But most of us don't know Andrew. A Andrew is just this brother that is not often mentioned. Peter's mentioned mate way more. But these two blue-collar types were just the run-of-the-mill, hard-working fishermen types during this day. But one thing that we discover in the Gospel of John that we don't get to hear about in the other Gospels is a little bit more about how Andrew and how Peter came to follow Jesus Christ. And looking in John chapter 1, if we were begin looking at verse 35, the text begins with John and another disciple. Now, we don't know who that other disciple is. Some speculate it was John, the disciple of Jesus. But we don't know. But we do know that Andrew is mentioned. That Andrew and this other disciple were disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus. Now, some of you may have known that. Some of you didn't know. But it seems to indicate, the text seems to indicate, as we go back and if we look even further into uh, John chapter 1 and verse 29... When Jesus was baptized by John, we see that these two disciples were very likely present at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Now, now how amazing is that? To, to think about that Andrew and this other disciple were present 
when, G, when John says to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, the next day after Jesus' baptism, we read this for text in verse 35, and it says, the next day, again, John was standing with his, two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he says it again, behold the Lamb of God. Now, this would have been a huge exclamation for John the Baptist is proclaiming that this is the Lamb of God. This is the one who will come and who will take away the sins of all the nation of Israel, all the people who will believe in him, who will follow after him. And notice these two disciples start to get it because what do they do? Well, they've been following John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was kind of a radical guy to follow, Right? He wasn't dressed really well. He wasn't like suit and tie kind of guy. He was living the wilderness kind of guy and, and was, did his ministry out there in the wilderness. And to follow John the Baptist would have been a little bit radical. And then all of a sudden, they hear him make this statement regarding Jesus in verse 37. And the two disciples heard him say this. And what did they do? They followed Jesus. They left after following John the Baptist, and they followed after the one that John the Baptist was pointing towards. Because remember, John the Baptist had made this statement, I, here comes one that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. It's Jesus. John the Baptist wasn't trying to accumulate followers for himself. He was trying to point people to Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. And these two disciples got it. And they began following Jesus. And Jesus turns and he sees them following after him. And he says to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? I love that. We want to spend some time with you. We want to get to know you. And he said to them, come and you will see. What an amazing time that had to have been to witness the baptism of Jesus Christ, right? The glory that would have been surrounding that event and then to just come and hang out with Jesus. What a, what a time that had to have been. And we know it changed them because what, is it, what do they do? What is their response and their reaction to spending that time with Jesus? Well, they, so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother. So what did he do? This is so great. The text indicates here what was Peter, Andrew's first initial reaction after spending this time with Jesus. What do you want to go do? He wanted to go tell his brother. Now, those of us who have family members that are not yet believers, that is some of the toughest people in the world to talk to Jesus Christ about. Why? Because they know all of our junk, right? They've watched us be that rude, bratty little sibling growing up. How would you know what the Messiah looks like? Really? I know what your life's like. But Andrew doesn't care. Andrew has seen Jesus. He has spent time with Jesus. And that statement of, I think I found, I found the Messiah. Come meet him. Brothers and sisters, we have a hard time grasping the profoundness of that statement because we live this side of the cross. We look back to the Messiah. We look back to what he has done. But these people were waiting with great anticipation of Jesus coming. Now, they didn't know it was going to be Jesus. They had a different vision, a different understanding of what all that would entail. But let me tell you what, when, when 
Andrew drops that. That's like an atomic bomb going off. Are you the Messiah, the promised one of old? For thousands of years, we've been waiting for him. Are you telling me he's on the scene right now and he spent time with you? <laughs> Peter comes. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now two brothers are following Jesus. The next story I'd like to spend time talking with you is a story about a half-breed tramp. Some strong language. I was going to use a different word there, but um, probably thought I would have audible gasps if I used that word. But I want you to wrestle with right now. We could see Jesus spending time with a couple blue-collar workers. But the fact that Jesus would spend time with a woman who was half Jew and half something else, A woman who'd been married several times and the guy that she was shacking with who was probably lying with that morning is not her husband. Wrestle with the gravity. How many of us would have spent time with her? How many of us would have seen the value in her changed life? What Jesus does in the most amazing of ways. In John chapter 4, if you're not there, turn there. It's just a little bit further in your Bible. I'm not going to read the whole story to you. But Jesus comes to this point, and they, he asks his disciples for some food, and they have to run off and go get some food to, to eat, and he's left alone, and there's this woman who comes to the well. And she comes to the well at a time of the day when hopefully nobody else would be there. She does not want to be bothered. She does not want to be around people. She knows who she is. She knows the life that she has chosen. And she, she knows that she is not a person that other people want to be around, nor does she want to be around them. She doesn't want to see their accusing looks. She doesn't want to see their disappointing stares. She doesn't want to hear their words whispered to one another and an accusation of what a horrible person she is and what a horrible life she's lived. She doesn't want to hear it. She's coming to the well so that she can get water by herself and return by herself and not be around those who hate her guts. But somebody's there that day who loves her. Jesus asks for a drink. <laughs> oh boy, starts this incredible dialogue. And, and you can hear you can hear the words of a scorned woman. You can hear the edge to her voice. Why are you a Jew asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Don't you just know I've come here to get my water and go home? Leave me alone. <clears throat> Jesus goes on to spend time with her and, and replies to her that, hey, if you knew who it was that was, was asking you for a drink, you, you would ask for the living water so that you would thirst no more. And, and they go into this dialogue, and, and she, she discerns after he tells her that you, you've been married this many times, and, and the guy you're living with is not your husband. So she discerns after that moment, well, I guess you're a prophet. 
Good for you. Great. So now my sin is just out here in the open. Okay. Sir, in verse 19, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what, we, what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What? Seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. A woman deemed worthless in this society. And Jesus spends time with her and shares with her that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the hope for all nations and all peoples. He is the fulfillment of the covenant of Abraham when God said that through your seed there will come one who will be a blessing to all the nations. And that one sits before this broken woman. The disciples came back at that time and the woman left her water jar. <laughs> you almost want to underline that. Why did she come to the well? To get water. And the Jesus spoke to her of living water, didn't he? And he said, if you get the living water, you're not going to... And what does she do? She leaves her jar behind in a very powerfully symbolic event that demonstrates that she had received the living water. And she went back. And what, is, what does she do? Verse 29, she goes back to her village. Now her village knows who she is and what has she been doing. Because they didn't live in a society with tall fences, doors that locked, garages that closed, and we kept everything to ourselves. They lived in a society where everybody knew everybody's business and you relied on everybody for everything. So here, this half-breed tramp goes back to her town, radically changed by Jesus Christ. And she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. Now let me tell you what, I love the way she does this. She doesn't run back into town. She, she knows who she is. She knows what, what, what's taking place in her heart and life. And she doesn't sit there and say, I found the Messiah. I found the Messiah. He's changed my life. No, he says, I, I think I found the Messiah. I think I found the Christ, and, I, and, and they came out to greet him. She could, why would anybody listen to her? Well, God was moving and God was working in this moment. The Holy Spirit was powerfully working. But her, what was her first reaction? What was her first response to the living water, to her life changed by Jesus? 
I've got to go tell people. And I'm going to go back to my village who knows who I am, knows what I've done, and they probably have a very low opinion of me, but they need Jesus too. And we get to read in this wonderful text, in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. How did she celebrate How did she celebrate that her life was changed by Jesus Christ? She told people. Now, how much theology did she know at this point? Brothers and sisters, she had not been to seminary. She hadn't even gone to to a Sunday school class. She hadn't even sat in a church service. All she knew is she found the one who changed her life. And that story of God changing her life was more than sufficient for Christ to change other people's lives. The greatest story that we have is how Christ changed our lives for his glory. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. It is radical. I know, unfortunately, today in this world, radical has developed this bad connotation, right? But it is It's amazing, it is awesome, it is powerful that God has got a hold of our lives and has changed them. And this woman firmly believed in it as she goes and she shares with her town and many believe and come out and spend time with Jesus and many more believe. And this half-breed tramp goes from being that to this precious child of God forgiven with a new life to live and a powerful story to tell. The last story I would like to share with you this morning is that of Luke 19. So John comes after Luke, so go backwards a little bit to Luke 19. And I titled this story the puny traitor thief. This is a story about Zacchaeus. This idea that he wasn't just a short man, but he was an insignificantly short man. And he was so short that he had to climb up into a tree to see Jesus. He was a traitor to his people. He worked for the Roman government to take taxes. And he was a thief because the Romans said, take this much. But they didn't just take this much, they took this much so that they could line their own pockets. He was puny, and he was a traitor, and he was a thief. How do you think the society liked him? Not very much. We kind of feel similar about IRS individuals. If we have any IRS folks in here, love you. Jesus loves you. You're doing your job, right? But doggone, IRS and tax time, we're coming to the end of the year. How many of you are thinking about your taxes? Yeah, a few of us, right? Puny, traitor, thief. This passage enters with a weight, the weight of the idea of Jericho. The town that had been walls torn down, the nation of Israel marched, had marched around it and had fallen. It also comes with it, though, also this incredible story of, of faith. Oh, yeah, God loves saving what society deems worthless prostitute and and so much so 
that that person was valuable and was used by God, not only in the preservation of the nation of Israel, but also in the heritage and legacy of Jesus Christ. God loves changing lives. God loves taking what is the insignificant and making them useful for his kingdom. Like he does with a puny traitor thief. Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming. Not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. He taught other people how to be traitor thieves. And he was rich for it. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on the account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. You got to wonder if that's the only reason Jesus was going to Jericho that day, to go after one puny trainer thief. What is Zacchaeus' response? He, he hurries and he comes down and received him joyfully. And, and what did the society do? When society saw what was taking place, they're like, instead of rejoicing, praise God, that, that, that chief tax collector guy, he's, he's running into Jesus. I bet things are going to be different. No, they're grumbling and they're complaining because, oh, Jesus is spending time with him? They still hadn't got it. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. And let me tell you what this morning Jesus came for the sick, brothers and sisters. We're all sick. And if you think this morning you're not sick, then you're not in need of Jesus Christ. He came for the sick, for the broken. And he came so that he might heal our hearts and change our lives. He gets a hold of Zacchaeus' heart. Check this out. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and this is a little interesting of a statement, if I have, yeah, yeah, yeah you have, right? You about ready to go broke, Zacchaeus, because, you know, I will refold it fourfold, I'll repay it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Because Zacchaeus' life was being changed by Jesus Christ, his actions, his heart was changed, and that just flowed out of him to other people as his life was changed. And so what does he do? Hey, my life's been changed by Jesus, so therefore my life is going to impact others with this proclamation of what Jesus done. Because when Jesus comes in, when Jesus gets a hold of us, our lives get changed. 
And I could continue to tell you story after story. I could go back to John chapter 1, and I could share with you Philip and Nathaniel and that story. I could share with you the stories of all those people that Jesus healed, and he couldn't get them to shut up. He's like, be quiet. Don't go telling everybody yet. And they're like, no way. I can't. My, I've been changed by Jesus. i got to go tell people. And all of them running out and telling people how Jesus had changed their lives. I can sit here and tell you story after story how the apostles' lives were changed so much so that they never were ever to be able to be the same person again. And they all went to the hazard for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to ask you a question. I want a response from you this morning. So this is a little interaction. What is the common theme running on all of those stories? One more time. Dwight, you said something. Go and tell. Go and tell. Yep. Got to tell. Changed lives. Changed lives equals got to tell. Stories run through scripture all over the place. If God has changed your life, you have to share this message of Jesus Christ. When you've encountered Jesus Christ, you've got to tell people. Why aren't we? What's our hesitation? What's our struggle? What, what is keeping us back? Because let me tell you what, that when we think of telling the story of God, we think of telling just the story that leads people to the point of salvation. But you've got more than just that story to share. You know, you know where this sermon was originated from? My wife discipling my heart this week. I'm struggling with the passages. I'm struggling to find and work through this text, these texts this week and find out, Lord, what does this mean and what are we supposed to be talking about this Sunday? Monday, I had spent all this time. I had, I had commentaries all over my desk. I went home and I'm like, ah, I've spent 10 hours and I've done nothing. And I go back Tuesday and I did the same thing Tuesday and I'm struggling and trying to figure this out. And this frustration level for a pastor, Sunday comes a lot quicker than you think. And you're like, it's Tuesday and I'm panicking and I'm sitting there. Christy comes home from her time with her lady, their DNA group. And, and, and she sits down next to me and I'm like sharing with her. I'm panicking, Christy. I didn't have a text for Sunday. She goes, well, can I share with you what we were learning about in our time? She starts sharing with me about a John 1. How Simon and Andrew were changed by Jesus and how Philip and Nathaniel. My wife discipled my heart that night. And I guarantee you when those DNA ladies, those ladies sat down and began to meet on Tuesday night, they had no idea what they were going to talk about would end up here on Sunday morning to be a benefit for all of us. But that's what the family of God looks like. It's how we disciple each other. And, and, and you need to hear those stories. You know what other stories need to be told? We need to be telling our not yet believing friends, our people who want to know Jesus Christ, the struggles that we have. They need to know that I don't have a perfect marriage. They need to know that my wife and I struggle a little bit and sometimes mourn a little bit. And, and we need God's grace and mercy in our marriage so we can stay strong. And continue to move forward. They get to see that. They should see that. They should hear about that. Because sometimes when we think about bringing people to the cross, we just think about bringing them, Just I just want to tell them the gospel story that will change their life, 
right? And so that they'll come to faith in Jesus Christ and become a child of God. But guess what we can also be doing during this time before they come to faith? We can be showing them what it is to be a child of God. So that when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, they already know, oh, Jesus is supposed to change my marriage. Jesus is supposed to change how I parent. Jesus is supposed to change how I grandparent. Jesus is supposed to change how I am a worker. Jesus is supposed to change how I do my taxes. Jesus is supposed to change how I come to church on a Sunday morning. Jesus Jesus is supposed to change everything. And we can teach people that even before the cross, and we can disciple their hearts. Because Jesus is changing all of us. We can put all of that on display. Not just the story of how Jesus Christ died for their sins was an absolutely necessary story to share. But we want to stare with them. Jesus changes all of us. Just like he did to the tax collector, the puny traitor thief. And then after the cross, we continue to disciple each other's hearts. But unfortunately, when we think about telling our story, this is the only way we think about it. Brothers and sisters, put your life on display for others to see. When we talk about living life on life, this is what we mean. Let's unlock the door. Let's raise up our garage doors. Let's open up our fences. Let's let people in to see our lives and the brokenness and our need for Jesus and the everyday stuff of life. So that they know, that they learn, man, Jesus really is it's so amazing. And Jesus really does change everything. You know, in Kathy's video, I'll keep referencing it. She says what? It's all about Jesus. And that's what we want to be with our lives as we talk about celebrating what he's done, celebrating what he's going to do, celebrating what he's doing right now. It means we put him on display everywhere we go. And that means that we show our desperate need for him because we're the sick. We once were the lost, and in some days we're, we're still struggling, right? We're still lacking faith. We're still struggling to believe the truth. We're still tr- struggling to trust. And we don't need to be afraid to say, you know what, I'm struggling today. And they're like, wait a minute, I thought you Christians never struggle. Are you kidding me? I need Jesus just as much today as I did yesterday. In fact, the, the reality is the more we learn about Jesus, the more we learn about our relationship with him, the more we discover our desperate need for him. So what are some of the lies we believe? What are things that keep us from sharing? One of them is I don't know enough. Do you know Jesus changed your life? Do you know he loves you? Do you understand how much he pursued you to call you his child? Do you know your desperate need, your inability to have faith apart from Jesus Christ? Do you know those things? Because it is in those things that we can share our story with other people. You don't have to have a master's degree. You don't have to know Genesis to Revelation. Know Jesus. Know what he has done for you, how he's changed his life, and continue to grow and be passionate about him, and then grow in that knowledge, and then be more passionate about him. But the problem is what I'm so scared of for our church family, and it is rampant across Bible churches in America, that we have learned about God void of the passion for God. And I don't want that for us. That if your knowledge of God should lead you to be more passionate, more excited, more just on fire for him, but if your, if your knowledge of God does not lead you to that, you know what? There's a guy named Bart Ehrman. 
who was, who was his doctoral father and Bart's a professor in, in New Testament studies at North Carolina. And he was raised up underneath one of the most amazing Bible scholars of this age, Bruce Metzger, was his doctoral father. I'm pretty sure Bart Ehrman could come in here and talk circles around every person in this room in regards to Greek and the study of the New Testament. And he denies Jesus Christ as long as the day is long. Knowledge, void of passion, void of life change. We want to see those two together. We want to grow up in Jesus Christ and be passionate about him. You don't sit here and say, I don't know enough to not talk to my neighbor. Has Jesus Christ changed your life? Another, another thing that we can believe, and it's something that I've personally struggled with, and that is my story isn't radical. It isn't that radical. I grew up in a Christian family. I went to a Christian school when I was a kid. At seven years old, I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. My, my teacher came and got me. I thought I was headed to the spanking room. I visited there a few times. It was back in the day when that was okay. And, and the bad part about it, I always knew I got another one when I got home. So, you know, I was like, great, double duty. Here we go again. And I was running through my mind, what had I done that day? And I was like, man, did I spit water again? Did I, what did I do? And... She brought me in there. Instead of me getting a spanking that day, she begins to tell me about Jesus Christ and how he had died for my sins. And to this day, I can remember the image, the powerful image of Jesus on the cross looking down into my eyes saying, I'm doing this for you. And I began to weep and cry. But I wasn't on drugs. I wasn't on alcohol. I didn't have, you know, didn't, wasn't with a lot of women. I didn't come out of a, this radical, horrible background of, of a lot of tragic things. But there's a lie that the evil one wants you to believe. For those of you who may have had that experience, that lie is it's not that big of a deal that Jesus saved you. And that is such a lie. The same blood necessary to die for the woman at the well, to die for Zacchaeus, was the same blood that was needed to, to be shed for you and me. Our lives being changed by God is nothing short of a miracle. It's the power of God. So, so destroy that lie. Understand the depth of what took place for Jesus Christ to call us brothers and sisters, for God the Father to call us sons and daughters. Go back and study the crucifixion. Go back and study and understand how deep and depth your depravity really is. And understand how amazing God's power and might is to save you from that. The final one, I think, I think, and I'm just giving you three. There are more out there, and maybe you should be writing some down right now. But the, the final one that I want you to wrestle with this morning, it will hurt my relationship with other people. If I share Jesus Christ, if I'm always about like, man, yeah, I had a rough day with my wife today, talking with my neighbor, and you know, Jesus really just showed up and helped me. Heal that out. You probably heard us yelling at each other probably today. And we're afraid that if we bring up Jesus into the conversation or if we actually share the, the fact that we have struggles, that somehow we'll be unattracted to our neighbors. And I, I want to share this, this clip with you. I want to give you a little bit of heads up what this clip is up. This gentleman is an atheist. He is from Penn and Teller. Any of you heard of Penn and Teller? They're a magician duo. Okay. Penn is an outspoken atheist. 
But this is what he has to say. And I'm going to ask you to make sure the volume's up and good and clear on this one. This is what he has to say in regards to Christians talking to him about faith. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. You I don't respect that at all. That if you like believe that there's a heaven and hell and people... And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. There you go. Thanks, Mike. I want to live this... There we go. Wow. Um, you want to pause it again, Mike? You just go to the corner of over left-hand corner. Pause it. Thanks. It's a really good point. How much do we have to hate our neighbor? To hate our friends? To hate our coworkers? To not share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? There was a, there was a song back when I was a in college by, what was their name? Um, when I was in college, uh, the Christian little band there at my school, Everybody Duck. And they had this song called The Cure. They, they weren't really that good of a band. They, they, they uh, had a lot of fun talking about Jesus, but they had this really powerful song called The Cure. And he talks about having this cure for this illness of sin and that we're running around with this cure in our pocket. And how selective we are in sharing that cure. But how unselective Jesus Christ was. He went after the most broken, the most destitute, the people that people had just given up hope on. Society had just, they're not worth our time or our troubles. Jesus loved those folks. You see, this is what this is all about. And this is probably one of the weirdest capital initiatives that you've maybe even heard of or talked about because we haven't been talking about a building. We haven't shown you building diagrams. We haven't shown you a ton of plot, land, and all that stuff. But what we've been talking about is that we are in business of celebrating and encountering Jesus Christ. And that because of us encountering Jesus Christ and celebrating what he's done, celebrating what he's going to do, celebrating what he's doing, that we have this responsibility to go and tell. And that as we go and tell, things are going to happen and we're going to need a facility to, to have our gatherings in. And it's going to be a while till we have that facility. And there's going to be some growing pains. And there's going to be some things that aren't easy to go through. But I think we're going to encounter Jesus even in that. And we get to praise God. 
But I was reminded this week, this week was one of those weeks. I, I, it had to have been Commitment Sunday, because if it was going to go wrong, it went wrong this week. I thought I was going to have to literally go over to Paul McNally and get him some antidepressants, because we got so much like bad news this week. But I called up Glenn, and I'm sharing this with Glenn, and Glenn goes, well, that doesn't matter, Scott. Tell me how any of those things prevent you from telling you the story of Jesus Christ, how it prevents you from loving your neighbor and from loving your family as God calls us to. Tell me how any of those things prevent us from doing that. I was like, none of them do. He goes, okay. Then God's going to work those things out. You focus on those things. Pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord God, so much how you're challenging our hearts and you're pushing us. And Lord God, we are going to try to live this out in this community this week imperfectly. We need your grace. We need your love. You need the Holy Spirit guiding and directing our conversations. And Lord, make us so dependent on you. Lord God, thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. May the gospel of Jesus Christ powerfully move in this valley. We pray, Lord God, so much this in our name of our Savior and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks so much for attending.